Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Dr. Marilyn Glenville. Marilyn is a nutritionist specializing in women's health. Today, we're going to talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS for short, its potential causes, treatments, and lifestyle interventions that can help to improve it. So, without further ado, Marilyn, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ben. I'm lovely to be able to talk to you today. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And to talk um, about something which I guess is a little bit unusual for a guy to be speaking about, which is PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yes, but I think it's lovely because, you know, you're working with women. We interact with each other all the time. And to find out more about things that women can be suffering from that, you know, can be giving them a lot of different symptoms, I think is wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, and and. One thing which I wanted to ask you about, just to give the listeners a bit of background, um, is that you've had a, a focus on women's health in particular. Do you think women have a propensity to have more kind of hormonal health conditions than men? Yes, I think so. We've got, I think, <laughs> uh, more parts that can go wrong, if I say that. And and because we're on a roller coaster every month, you see, I mean, your hormones are pretty stable. Yes, they might go down as you get, you know, slightly older and that, but it's a pretty much of a stable picture. But women are on a roller coaster every month. Of course, there's stages that we go through with pregnancy and then the menopause. So there's quite a lot of hormonal upheavals and that does give rise to many more problems, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely understand that. One thing for the rest of this podcast, I think it'd be good if we just um, if we refer to polycystic ovarian syndrome as PCOS. Otherwise, I'll get completely tongue tied. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now, one thing which is fascinating to me is that, well, I found out that many of my friends actually have PCOS, but just how prevalent it is. Like I actually read this morning that on well, it was on the NHS website that it affects about one in every five women. Yes, it does. And it. I think because I think diagnosis is getting better, I think we're going to see that. I think it's also on the rise as well. And of course, it's a, a major cause of infertility for women. So it's not just the symptoms they're getting because of the condition, but also how it affects their quality of life and plans they might have for the future. So there's a, a lot of issues around the whole syndrome that really need to, the women do need a lot of help with it absolutely and that is definitely something i want to cover with you a little bit later now it would be great to start off with if you could clarify why it's different from something like ovarian cysts <laughs> yes and i think that is really important and the the terminology we've got polycystic ovary syndrome is actually incorrect and it should really be called polyfollicular ovary syndrome because mm -hmm. it's a problem with these small immature follicles and women often think that the diagnosis that they've been given they've got ovarian cysts and they haven't i think unfortunately we're stuck with pcos because it's well known now and i don't think it will change but actually it isn't correct and it is this cluster 
of small follicles, immature follicles on the ovaries that make the ovaries look like a bunch of grapes. They're not cysts. So it really should be polyfollicular ovary syndrome, which would probably be more of a tongue twister. <laughs> yes, I, I think we'll <laughs> stick to PCOS for now. <laughs> yeah. Do because. I can't imagine there's an evolutionary advantage to women developing this condition. So why does it manifest in the first place? Well, I think it's manifesting in changes in terms of our diet seems to be an issue there because of it's all built around being a problem with insulin sensitivity. And I think in times where people may have had feast and famine situations and in those times where food may have been short, there wouldn't be a problem with insulin resistance because the diet wasn't in the abundance or processed like it is now. So I think that's why those women would have been protected who may have had a sensitivity to this because they weren't in an environment that would allow that to be expressed in that sense. So I think it's become more of an issue with our lifestyle and our dietary choices that have happened around the world, really. Yes, yes. I think with a lot of um, modern day conditions now, it is due to the way we live our lives. Um, one thing which I'm interested in, because I've, I've talked about this kind of evolu- evolutionary adaptation before, um, do genetics ever play a role in this or is it purely environmental? There has been suggestions it might be genetic, but it hasn't been clear enough in terms of the research or whether it's just a familial tendency. And mm-hmm. again, is that because how the family have eaten, so they're all eating the same, so that's where the risk factor is coming from. So there's been a number of different theories put forward, but it's still nothing really definite at the moment. So yes, there may be a genetic component, but nobody's come up with anything definite. Okay. And I've read that symptoms seem to vary quite massively from things like oily skin, weight gain, coupled with what you mentioned before, which is insulin resistance and um, even hair loss. So what are the most common physical or, or mental symptoms that you see in clinic? And I suppose because it's a syndrome, it does mean there's a continuum from some women who get very subtle symptoms and it's affecting them in a more uh, lighter way to those where it's very extreme. So, of course, there's going to be this whole continuum of different symptoms. I have to say the most common ones will be few or no periods, the excess hair, the acne and the scalp thinning as well. So it's almost like a male pattern baldness situation Um, and of course there's problems getting pregnant there can be a risk of recurrent miscarriage I think also you're right about the emotional side and I think that affects women a lot in terms of the mood swings depression and especially if they feel that they're losing their femininity Mm -hmm. femininity because the symptoms are male hormone driven And so that's the problem with the excess hair and the acne and the hair loss in other places. So they do feel a loss of femininity, which does affect them psychologically and relationships and everything else around that. So it's very much a a physical and psychological situation mixed together there. Yeah, yeah. 
And in your book, um, The Natural Solutions to PCOS, you speak about diet and PCOS. Now, you mentioned insulin resistance before, which, I, which I've got a feeling is going to play a, a big factor or a big topic of our conversation. But how fundamental is diet when trying to overcome some of the symptoms of PCOS? Well, I think that's what's so wonderful for us in terms of the nutritional world, because the evidence in the medical literature does show that dietary interventions really are very successful. So we have a lot of evidence there. Even just a small percentage change in weight can change uh, the ovarian function. So we have a lot of evidence there that does suggest that in this case with PCOS, that the dietary and, it, and nutrition intervention that we can put in is really successful. And that gives, I think, the women themselves and us as practitioners a lot of confidence to know what we should be recommending because we know it has been looked at in the medical literature, not only the dietary side, but also the nutrients as well. So we have a lot of tools to be able to help this woman who is suffering from PCOS. And something which which comes up quite often, like what is a healthy diet? But I guess what I'd like to know, or I imagine what the listeners would like to know, is what you believe a healthy diet is for women with PCOS. Yes, yeah, so there would be some variables that would be slightly different. And I think what also makes the difference for women to hear is why that particular dietary recommendation recommendation is important for them and their condition that they're aiming to eliminate or reverse. And I think that's really important because, you know, we can all talk about the Mediterranean diet, but it's specific recommendations with PCOS that are really important. Mm -hmm. One of them that might seem a bit controversial for people is actually to take out dairy foods and I do recommend that women with PCOS take them out for at least three months and the issue there is that they contain a substance called insulin-like growth factor mm -hmm. IGF-1 which is similar in structure to insulin and it can stimulate the storage of glucose in fat cells and it also involved in the maturing of the follicles on the ovaries so it can stimulate the production of male hormones from the ovaries so Yes, people talk a lot about dairy food and maybe their mucus, you know, producing those sort of aspects of it. But I think if a woman knows why specifically that particular food or a food group could be so important to her at the time because of something like PCOS, it does make the motivation to make that dietary change for at least three months to see the difference it can make. And we know there's good science behind it. Yeah, I, I mean, dairy is one of those things, like my personal experience, I know it's only N equals one, but when I removed dairy from the diet, my skin problems calmed down quite dramatically. Um, it was actually cow dairy more so than goat and sheep dairy, um, where I used to have oily skin and quite severe acne. So I used to take Accutane when I was younger. And when I removed dairy, that all seemed to calm down. And I think there is an element there with IGF-1, but also because dairy contains natural hormones, there might be an interplay there as well. Um, yeah, and it also stimulates the, an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase, which converts testosterone into its stronger form, the dihydrotestosterone, causing acne and hirsutism. So it could actually then cause acne in a man as well as it might do in what we're talking about for male hormones for a woman. So yes, it may, it may have been quite 
something, a brilliant solution for you at the time. Yeah, I mean, only if I knew when I was younger, right? I, th- I think um, as I progressed, it was like nearing the back end where the acne was kind of calming down anyway, and I removed it and it all just went away quite very quickly. Um, so yeah. I, th- I think there was definitely a factor there. And if I do include it back in my diet, it ca- I do get a flare up. Um, so yeah, it's quite consistent, my results with that. Well, when you say it contains IGF-1 and that will be a factor, will that be a factor with the actual the um, symptoms of PCOS or will that actually affect the underlying condition itself, if you know what I mean? Yes, I think it's doing both because it affects the maturation of the follicles on the ovaries, but it's also having this um, androgen effect as well in terms of the symptoms that are coming out, the acne and the excess hair. So I think it can be playing a, a dual role there. And that's why some of the food changes may be impacting on targeting the condition in multiple ways at the same time, which I think that's why it makes it so, you know, powerful because we're looking at how we can actually then work on different aspects of this syndrome simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And because you mentioned IGF-1, I actually spoke with um, the CEO of Elnutria. He was called Dr. Joseph Anton, um, and he works pr- closely with Professor Falter Longo, who, who discovered the fasting mimicking diet. And the premise behind that diet is it reduces a lot of these um, kind of growth-promoting hormones, IGF-1, mTOR, things like that. Is fasting ever considered with women with PCOS? Well, I would say they would just have to be careful. I tend to go along with a different approach for PCOS and suggest um, actually little and often. I'm trying to keep insulin very stable or the glucose very stable so they're not producing X amounts, uh, excess amounts of insulin. And my concern about fasting is it does increase cortisol. Mm-hmm. So it's increasing the stress response because the body will perceive that there is a famine out there and a shortage of food. And my difficulty with PCOS and the women that I'm seeing is often there will be a stress component with it as well. And the difficulty with the adrenal glands is that they are producing male hormones. And so if we put them under more pressure because they're already stressed because the condition they've got and our you know, life itself, everything else that's going on around it, relationships and work and everything else, and you put fasting in there for them, it's increasing what's going on on that adrenal side. So I'm very careful about recommending some like, something like that for a woman when there may, there may be hormonal issues going on. Okay, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And that actually segues nicely because there's something that you mentioned in the book, which I think is quite different to what other people recommend on the podcast or have recommended on the podcast, is that you recommend eating um, carbohydrates and protein every three hours. So eating every three hours during the day, which is very different to maybe having just three square meals a day and avoiding snacking. Um, yeah. Why, why do you focus on that approach? Because again, for women, we tend not to be able to go so long without food as men. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty is if we go into low blood sugar, into hypoglycemia, we are going to be releasing those stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. So there will be a stress response just because of a blood glucose 
fluctuation. And I'm trying to avoid that in these women. It doesn't have to be a lot of food. It can be something very small, but it's just maintaining a steady level of blood sugar over the day. So there aren't these crashes into hypoglycemia with they then triggering the release of the stress hormones, which for a woman with PCOS can be then producing more um, androgens from the adrenal glands. Right. Okay. That, that makes sense. And in relation to diet, are there any foods in particular which you prefer to emphasize? I know a lot of people say nutrient-dense foods and primarily focus on if they do eat animals, eat organ meats and things of that nature. So I'd be interested to get your, your take on it. Yeah, so there's been some good research that those women who actually eat a lot of meat and starchy foods, but I'm talking about more refined starchy foods here, have 23% lower levels of a protein which is produced by the liver called sex hormone binding globulin. And those women who have more of an emphasis on a plant-based diet and with the pulses in there actually have much higher levels of this SHBG. And this protein is really important because it binds excess hormones like testosterone and estrogen so it would be pushing the diet towards more plant-based i they still could keep some animal foods in like egg and particularly things like oily fish because the omega-3s are really crucial for pcos because they're helping to keep the insulin receptors sensitive to insulin so there will be benefits with certain foods being in there other than just the fact that they may be supplying a, a good quality protein, they're also supplying certain nutrients that are going to be helpful with the condition itself. Right, okay. So it, would it be important to eat foods which increase levels of sex hormone binding globulin, even for women, even without the condition, for example? Yes, it would be. Um, it is an important protein generally. And when you think it's binding both testosterone and estrogen, it would be helpful for women with an estrogen dominant condition like fibroids, endometriosis, or a history of an estrogen dependent breast cancer. So these, these aspects of increasing the plant base, the legumes, all of that aspect of that side of it is really important because flax seeds also will help increase SHBG. So it's about getting the levels of this protein up because it will do what it's supposed to do in binding those excess hormones. And you mentioned legumes and flax seeds there. Is it quite often foods which are higher in fiber, which tend to promote this SHBG? Yes, it will be. Um, and those are really important. And they will have another aspect as well, which is the phytoestrogenic aspect. Mm -hmm. And there is total confusion around this terminology because it implies that a plant is going to supply estrogen. And it doesn't. They have a very definite balancing effect on hormones for women with PCOS and for all women with whatever hormonal condition or the transition through the menopause. So the chickpeas, uh, the lentils, the flax seeds, yes, the soya as well, but it needs to be good quality, are all having a balancing effect on hormones as well as the fiber content as well, which is helping the SHBG. But it's the isoflavoins in these phytoestrogens that are really creating a very balancing effect on the hormones generally right okay 
just to circle back, because you mentioned oily fish there, and like I've spoken, Dale Pinnock has mentioned this in the past, how omega-3, omega-6 balance is crucial mm. just to ensure that you stay in it um, or you don't promote inflammation. Um, why is omega-3 so important in PCOS? Is it, is it the inflammatory um, aspect? Yeah, so it's it's a couple of things, really. We know that women with PCOS will have higher levels of what we call C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation. They may also have, as part of the syndrome, fat around the middle, this extra weight around the middle of the body, which produces inflammatory substances. So this ratio of omega-6 to 3 is really crucial. And we test it in the clinic, and it is just amazing now Everybody we've tested, hundreds, have now got much too much omega-6 and not enough omega-3. So it's this pro-inflammatory condition that's happening and will manifest in different ways, whether it's arthritis, diverticulitis, dermatitis, anything with an ITIS on it is an inflammatory response. And I think this is really important to get this ratio correct. So it is that we're getting too much omega-6 from the diet in general and we really have to push the levels of omega-3 up and the extra benefit for the woman with PCOS is it keeps her the omega-3s help to keep the insulin receptors fluid and sensitive to insulin which is what one of the medications that are often prescribed which would be metformin which is an insulin sensitizer. Mm -hmm. And yet we have a way to do it nutritionally. So these omega-3s for the woman with PCOS are absolutely crucial. And you mentioned insulin sensitizing. And now I know there's lots of other compounds as well, which seem to be highly beneficial in this regard. Um, Ceylon cinnamon is one of them that I can think of. Um, I know people who are taking apple cider vinegar before certain meals mm -hmm. to help improve, I suppose that's a delayed gastric emptying, for example, to reduce kind of the blood glucose response. Is there anything that you use in clinic, which is particularly useful? In that regard? Yes, and I would say alpha-lipoic acid. So there's a lot of different uh, nutrients that um, can go in there, which really beneficial. So some are going to help with sugar cravings like chromium and that sort of thing. But we do know also that there's a, with magnesium, that there's a strong link that if people are deficient in magnesium, there's a higher risk of being insulin resistant, which is applicable even to people with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetic as just as much as it is for women with PCOS. So, and we found that the higher magnesium levels, the more sensitive the women are to insulin. So we have a lot of good research on these different nutrients that we could put in. And one other big area that's being looked at in terms of gestational diabetes and type 2 diabetes are the, the microbiome and making sure the beneficial bacteria are good. So it's really wonderful that we've got so many ways of being able, if we call it targeting this syndrome, in order to be able to help this woman with all the different aspects that may be going on for her. Yes, absolutely. And all, all, all of these kind of um, areas can be targeted through lifestyle intervention, which is hugely empowering as well. Um, when, when you said fish oil, um, sorry, when, you, when we were talking about the omega-3s, how exactly do women get these omega-3s in? Would you recommend a certain amount of fish per week? or And how about vegetarians? Because that can always be very difficult too. 
Yes, and that's the tricky bit, is being able to get the important component, <clears throat> excuse me, which are the EPA and DHA, much harder doing it from flax seeds. And it's thought there may be only 5 or 10% down from omega-3 to the actual EPA and DHA. So, yes, they will be definitely, if they're getting it, if they're getting oily fish, would be two or three times a week, or organic eggs would contain good amounts. I have to say that if somebody's vegan or vegetarian, the best way to do this is to get an algae EPA and DHA. And I think that's really important. We have to get it in at that part of the pathway, assuming that there may be problems with conversion because somebody problems with insulin, but maybe lacking certain nutrients like zinc and magnesium. So either to take it in a fish oil, I would say for women with PCOS that they ought to do a supplement put that in for three months alongside the dietary changes because even if they haven't been tested there will be this dominance of omega-6 and this pro-inflammatory side that those extra omega-6s will produce yeah and i completely understand why people i think with vegetarians and vegans in particular have to concentrate on those kinds of plant sources but also supplements as well i mean but it's quite difficult I mean, even for myself, and, and, I'll, and I'll admit this, I thought I had a, a very healthy diet until I measured my omega-3 to omega-6. Now, it wasn't insane where I've, I've heard some people's reporting like 35 to 1, etc., omega-6 yeah. to omega-3 balance. Yeah. Mine was 7 to 1 when I first measured it. And I was like, how is that the case? Mm. And um, when I kind of did an analysis of my own diet, I actually realized I was just eating far too many nuts. That was the that was the real kicker for me, um, and nuts are, seem to be particularly healthy. But I think overconsumption of anything might have a detrimental effect overall. So that was one component which I wasn't really completely aware of myself. And also things like olive oil and avocado, even though they're extremely healthy, relying them, relying on them as the your sole source of fatty acids will throw off your omega six and omega three as well. So it's quite a complex yeah. thing when you get down to it. it. It is. And two other ones where I'm seeing it is that because a lot of our pre-prepared food now, even crackers or something like that, will have vegetable oil in there. Yeah. So there's a lot of vegetable oil coming in from the diet, which will be omega-6. And the other aspect for those people who do eat chicken and meat, then they're feeding the cattle and whatever corn so the problem is that the fatty acid ratio of the animals changing because they're not grass fed, mm -hmm. they're corn fed. And so it's pushing the whole food chain out of balance. And also because people are consuming that it's this whole dominance. And you're right. I have seen women in the clinic with a 45 to 45 to one omega six. And I would say that anybody who has any pain or inflammation anywhere in the body really get that ratio checked it can be an absolute eye-opener and then it only takes about three months to turn it back round again but it's so common and the problem is I think a lot of the time it's the food chain that's actually creating this excess of omega-6 that's coming in yeah absolutely and um, I, I certainly think 
I mean, I, I was doing it from the, talking about my own personal experience, but trying to eat in a very healthy way. But I can't, when you're adding in these processed foods, like what you said, and that they are putting in these seed oils and often cooking, if you get any fast food or processed food, they'll be cooking mm. in things like um, sunflower oil, sunflower oil, for example, which will be high in omega-6. And you'll get them really without realizing, um, which I think is the, a really detrimental part of it as well. Yes, and when you think that many of the scientific community now is the feeling that inflammation is the underlying cause of all of our degenerative illnesses, whether you're looking at Alzheimer's, cancer, type 2 diabetes, other neurological conditions, that this inflammation may be the driving force. And if we can then help to control that with our diet and other things like vitamin D has a, it inhibits the pro-inflammatory response. We can talk about beneficial bacteria. We've got so many tools to be able to help somebody when they're in situations where this ratio may be completely out of a balance. Mm-hmm. I think what's wonderful about the things that you've mentioned as well is they actually target multiple mechanisms in the body. So even though one, one like, for example, vitamin D affects 1,000 genes within the human body and has multiple um, mechanisms in which it targets inflammation as an anti-inflammatory. So it's brilliant that we can have one thing do so many great things for us as well. Yes, and I think that's why the food is so powerful. And oftentimes, many things we might use will have what we call this adaptogenic effect. It's the same with vitamin D. It's an immune modulator. It will bring up the immune system if it's too low, and it brings it down if it's too high. So really important for people with autoimmune conditions. And a lot of the natural substances we use, herbs and that sort of thing, will have this adaptogenic effect. So we'll actually be able to rebalance somebody in whichever way the excess or deficiency may be happening and that's why the the natural remedies can be so powerful and and so beneficial it'd be great to talk about natural remedies in a second especially with the adaptogens in mind and but just on the topic of food what foods in particular would you say to completely avoid Well, I would say for me, the sugars have to come out, the refined sugar, the refined carbohydrate. They're the two key ones because they're going to cause a very fast, uh, they're going to be digested very quickly, going to be high glycemic index, are going to cause more release of insulin from the pancreas. And then that's adding to the insulin resistance. So they need to come out, excuse me, completely. There does need to be much more protein in there. could be vegetable sources. Um, animal sources in there to balance that off and particularly for women with PCOS to think about their liver and things like alcohol what kind of consumption is going in because the liver has to detoxify their hormones efficiently if not then that detoxification won't take place and there could be recirculation of old hormones so there may be things going in that are having a big impact because of how it's helped changing the body's ability to metabolize the hormones that should be excreted at the time. Right. So that's a really interesting element. Are are you seeing people in clinic with suboptimal liver function due to maybe their environment, their alcohol intake, et cetera, and that's exacerbating their symptoms? 
Yes, and also when you think about now non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is coming from this excess of sugar, it may, it may not be anything to do with alcohol, but it's coming from this whole sugar, refined carbohydrates, processed food, fast food mm -hmm. side of it that people are, are coming in because it's been picked up on a, an ultrasound scan. So we're seeing this much more. And of course, that is going to be affecting the body's the liver's ability to detoxify efficiently and this is crucial for any woman with a hormone situation and particularly pcos or any estrogen dependent condition okay so avoiding the things like alcohol and also removing the sugars and refined oils from the the diet will certainly help with liver function and then hopefully help with that that hormonal regulation from from what i gather yeah, and the refined starch carbohydrates are really important. They need to go because they're going to be converted into glucose too quickly. So it's all about really getting a, a low GI diet as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, one thing which I still find astonishing to this day is that white bread spikes blood sugar um, more than sugar does. Do you know what I mean? So white yeah. bread spikes blood glucose more than table sugar. Yes. And I suppose, you know, and there also aspects of quantity are going to be in this as well. Yes. So, you know, that's a, a big factor, too. And how do we help people with their portion size and how much of these foods they might be consuming on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's hugely empowering. So we've kind of encompassed that you remove all these refined oils and sugars and carbohydrates, increase fibrous uh, fruits vegetables and whole grains and add protein in there to kind of balance i assume that's balancing the blood sugar response um, yes it is yeah with fats what do you t tend to tend to focus on well i tend to do the omega-3 and 6 ratio to look at what's going on with that balance and also that pick, same test picks up whether there's any issues with trans fats and trans fats are interesting because they're the ones that will actually cause the insulin receptors to become uh, resistant because they're creating um, hardness there in the body. There are concerns in terms of cardiovascular disease, also Alzheimer's because the loss of fluidity and flexibility within cells. So it's again, reading labels, any partially hydrogenated or hydrogenated vegetable oils need to come out. So it's putting the emphasis more on the omega-3s generally and using supplements to create that balance if that ratio is out i do use uh, olive oil because it's omega-9 but also um coconut oil as well so that would be part of what they could use in terms of the oils in their diet depending on what's going on with their ratio and their level of other fats in there okay brilliant and that allows us to transition nicely into weight because we often tie in weight loss with diet and indeed we, we spoke about inflammation and we know that obesity and um, there's an underlying inflammatory component to obesity but we know that obesity increases inflammation and p people with PCOS have higher inflammation within the body and um, like you mentioned with uh, increased levels of crp now are they interconnected meaning does one exacerbate the other yes very much so and it's really hard because in the clinic when women come in with pcos they've usually tried every diet under the sun and it feels very demoralizing for them that actually it it doesn't work very well and I often talk to them about the fact that they've got a metabolic 
problem. That's what the issue is. And that this weight gain is all part of that, as well as all the other symptoms and the loss of periods and the excess hair and the acne and everything else. It's all part of this syndrome. And my aim is, although I'm using dietary interventions to take the emphasis away, away from that this is a diet to lose weight, although the research does show that even if they lose 5% of their weight, there is this remarkable change in ovarian function. In one study, 82% of the women with no ovulation at all would show improvement. So they, we do know that the weight issue is important, but it's how to put that across without another diet that they're going to do. So I do work on and focus on the hormone side of it and almost take a step back from the weight. They're going to lose weight by doing this, which is really wonderful, but they will have issues thinking that they've got to do another diet. So it's all about that they've got a metabolic problem and how do we change that that's going on with the hormones and to know that it's not, they can't always do the same diet as their friend who doesn't have PCOS and who can eat what they want and doesn't gain weight and it doesn't seem fair. And it's how we take that off that weight, literally weight off them to be able to focus on rebalancing the hormones, which then actually creates the weight loss instead of focusing on the weight itself. Right. Uh, ketosis is a real big kind of, well, it's growing in terms of its use. What are your thoughts on that? Because when we were talking about balancing blood sugar and insulin, that seemed to be something which was, you know, signaling in my mind to be beneficial. I know. I just have found that it is more difficult for women to do a lot of these much more stricter diets like yeah. the um, keto diet. And the difficulty is that for women, they've got a roller coaster of hormones going on every month. And what I've seen in the clinic is that men do very well on the intermittent fasting, the 5-2 diet, women not so much. And I think it, there is a difference in metabolism, in processing that changes how women manage with these diets. And of course, then it's how long could they keep this going and manage it? And what would be that? What's their really underlying goal? But I have found some of these diets to be not as beneficial for women as they are for men. Right. Yeah. Because there, there seems to be, I mean, I could just be talking from my own personal experience here and taking the this idea from friends of mine, but women seem to crave carbohydrates sometimes. And that might be in line with certain times of the month. I haven't really figured that out yet. Is that something that you see also? Yes. And that would be definitely, well, a woman with a, a, a regular cycle could be having premenstrual syndrome so premenstrual symptoms where the craving is being triggered at seven to ten days before the period so that is very strong for a lot of women alcohol could come into it as well but it could be carbohydrates but including you know sweets chocolate all of those too so that can be the hormones themselves can be driving changes in the dietary pattern so it does make it more difficult depending on the time of the month as well Right. Okay. And does salt play an element with that as well? I know that might seem like a slightly silly question, but sometimes I find that some of my friends with PCOS crave salty foods. 
Yes, it's interesting because they may be going for something savoury rather than sweet. Mm-hmm. I have to say probably more common that it is something sweet, but it could still be savoury. And then there still may be um, a big carbohydrate connection with that because it might be crisps. Oh, it is crisps. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. what I'm thinking of, Marilyn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yes, it, you've got the two and the fact with it as well. So you've got the, the quite a number of components with that too. So it just may be manifesting differently for them, but they're still getting the carbohydrate content there. Okay. Interesting. That's extremely interesting. I know we we didn't really touch upon it before, but what'd be interesting, I think, for the listeners is to understand the kind of diagnostic element. What how is it diagnosed conventionally and how do you diagnose it in clinic? Yeah, so oftentimes, well, over the years, it's been misdiagnosed and often missed completely. But it is really important that if a woman's not having a period at all, that she actually gets some investigations done because you want to rule out whether it might be something like a premature menopause and then the risk would be osteoporosis because she's not having enough estrogen and there's a risk to the bone density. There is now a widely accepted criteria. It's called the Rotterdam criteria. It's where all the scientists met to discuss the diagnosis. And women would need to have two out of three of these criteria. One would be frequent, infrequent, or no ovulation. It would be signs of male hormones, either physical, like the acne or the excess hair, or coming up on a blood test. And the third one is polycystic ovaries as seen on an ultrasound scan. So it has meant that more women now are being diagnosed, even those where they had more subtle symptoms, because we've now got something where it's two out of three of these different signs. And I think that's been really helpful because I think a lot of women were being missed because their symptoms were much more subtle than at the extreme end of the syndrome. Okay, that's brilliant to know. And do you think it's still missed now? Oh, I think it can be still missed. I mean, sometimes women have said to me, you know, they've gone to their doctor and they're not having periods. And the doctor may just say, well, you know, it's it's inconvenient, isn't it, having a period? You know, it, aren't you better off without them? But no, it's not natural as women during the reproductive age, we should be having a cycle. And if not, it needs to be investigated as why not? And there could be many reasons why a woman is not having a cycle, but it needs to be drilled down because there are risk factors depending on what that condition is. And with PCOS, the concern is that if a woman is not having a cycle, the womb lining could be building up And that could be a risk factor. So it is important that a woman does push to say, yes, I'm not having a cycle. I'd like to have investigations to find out what the underlying cause is. And that's really important. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned risk factor, but risk factor for what? Well, if you think of a woman um, who's not having a cycle and she could actually be going through a premature menopause and she could be in her 20s. I've seen women in the clinic at 17 who are actually going through a premature menopause. Mm-hmm. Now, a woman at that age cannot go for the next 40 odd years without those female hormones. She's got the big risk of, of osteoporosis. So there does need to be investigations with a woman with PCOS. 
she will have higher levels of estrogen. So she doesn't have a risk on her bones, but she has a risk of the endometrium, the womb lining building up, which could then cause problems if it's not picked up early enough. So there are different risks attached of why a woman is not having a cycle and why she isn't. And that needs to be investigated to get a definite diagnosis. Right. Okay. And just to confirm for for listeners that might be a little bit shocked by that, the 17 year old case, that's quite a, a very rare case, is it not? Yes, I have to say, again, that's increased as well. Um, oftentimes it's called premature ovarian insufficiency. And I found that if I can see a younger person quickly, then it's more likely that we might be able to get the cycle back. And one of the biggest reasons for this, because there can be many factors why a cycle might stop completely, would be a stress factor. Mm-hmm. And it can mm-hmm. be often if somebody's gone through a sudden bereavement, a car accident, something very shocking, it actually stops the cycle. And the difficulty then is if it's left, then that can carry on to the cycle not coming back at all. So it is important. And it, it unfortunately, it is becoming more common. Right. Okay. Perfect. Thank you for clearing that up. Now, we mentioned supplements before, and I, I know and this is a, a topic which I find incredibly fascinating because not everyone's on board with supplementation and some people really advocate it. And from reading your book, I know you're an advocate of them um, and for, for very good reason in certain circumstances, absolutely. And um, one thing which fascinated me, me was your use of certain herbs. Um, Agnes cactus being one of them and some of these herbs I hadn't really heard of before but that could just be to do with my training and it didn't cover this kind of herbal medicine element can you please explain like what these herbs are used for and when you would use them yeah so there's some really good ones I mean Agnes castus is the one that's classed as a adaptogenic herb it normalizes the function of the pituitary gland and very good so some women with PCOS have irregular periods they're still having one but it could be three months and then six months so they don't know when a cycle is going to be coming so things like Agnes Castus can be really useful the other one is black cohosh and that is useful in helping to suppress LH levels luteinizing hormone so that's a hormone that's often high usually high in women with PCOS and that is often it's needed because it triggers a you get a surge in LH, which causes the egg to be released from the um, ovary. And if an LH surge doesn't happen, the woman doesn't ovulate. And in women with post-PCOS, they have high levels of LH, so they never get a surge, so ovulation doesn't get triggered. And unfortunately, it's the hormone that's um, connected to a higher risk of miscarriage. So women with PCOS, once they get pregnant with a higher LH, it increases the risk of miscarriage, even if they got pregnant from an IVF cycle. So black cohosh is very helpful in lowering that down. I also always, with any hormonal situation, think of milk thistle and really helpful in terms of improving liver function and detoxification. I have to say that with vitamins and minerals and amino acids and Uh, essential fatty acids they can be used alongside the medication that women are using but if women are using a hormonal medication like a contraceptive pill that's got an 
uh, anti-androgen in there as well, then I would never put the herbs in. So there would be situations where there could be contraindications, not with the vitamins and minerals, but definitely with the herbs. And one other herb that does come into its own is saw palmetto. And it works as an anti-androgen and very useful when they've got higher levels of these male hormones. And it helps reduce the levels of an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase, mm -hmm. which converts testosterone into this active DHT, dihydrotestosterone, which then can target um, hair, skin, increasing the risk of acne and hirsutism. So there are some really good herbal remedies that could be used alongside the diet and alongside you know, the vitamins and minerals at the same time. It's thinking about doing all of this really well for three months to really tackle the problem. Right. Yes. I mean, I mean, absolutely. You, you you can add these supplements in, but if you're not looking at the lifestyle as a whole, then you're not going to get the full benefit, are you? Um, and no. Sounds... And, it, and, and for me, the diet is always the foundation of our health. It's really, it's not, well, take a few vitamins and minerals and we'll solve this and you can carry on eating the way you're eating. No, the, the other side of it, the dietary side has to become a way of life that then goes on into the future. And we're using just these other nutrients and herbs to target something in the short term while those the dietary side and that foundation is taking effect because it takes a bit longer with the food. Right. Yes. When you were talking about nutrients, um, it just got me thinking, what, what are the major deficiencies, if you see any, or what are the major deficiencies to look out for in women with this condition? Oh, I think the, the major ones would be vitamin D, which is coming up a lot with women generally, and this omega-6 to 3 ratio. So they're deficient in omega-3s, but they've got an excess of omega-6s. And interestingly, magnesium. It's one that, you know, everybody thinks everybody thinks about calcium in terms of women's health and bone health. But what we're seeing really is this low level of magnesium generally, which is important for insulin sensitivity. We know it's nature's tranquilizer. So it's important if that stress response is actually creating more of an androgenic effect for these women with PCOS. So it is this whole aspect of just making sure all the nutrients there could be low levels of zinc as well and that's important for the production of reproductive hormones so i would actually advocate doing a proper nutritional blood test testing everything and then we can actually personalize what people are taking what the women need to take in order to make sure it's correcting deficiencies and imbalances and retest it in three months time and just make sure everything's back to normal and the dietary side then could maintain that yeah something which comes up a lot when we talk about um supplements like this is that there's a certain cost element involved now with a healthy diet are supplements always necessary to get these kind of benefits i think with pcos yes it would be um oftentimes this would be a condition that the woman have had could have had for years and to think that the dietary side on its own will be enough would be too slow, I would say. I think over time, a few years or so, or a year, it could do that. The thing with PCOS, that a lot of women are coming in to get help with it because their main goal is fertility. And that there will be a time 
issue and a time pressure around it. So when women want to do this fairly quickly, it needs to be done and it can be done over three months is actually putting everything in place at the same time to make this more effective. And even with the food nowadays, even when it's organic, we may not know that how, what the level of nutrients are in that food because of the changes with farming, how far a food may have traveled before it actually gets to a supermarket. So my thing is always do everything at the same time. It helps with motivation. Women can see the effects much quicker because nutritionally, we're always trying to help motivate people to make these changes. And if the changes are very slow, they may lose and think, oh, this isn't happening and then may give up. And yet the results could be wonderful if they kept going. Right. Yes, that that's a, such a good way of looking at it, I guess, because if you say do this and the results will be in two years time, maybe it's very different, different than saying take these supplements and things will hopefully see results very quickly. Um, yes. Because seeing those small increments as well helps motivate the person to, to carry on with it. Oh, yes. And helps them keep track on the food side. That's mm-hmm. the thing is how do you help somebody keep eating well And then if they can see those results, because the nutrients may have made that effect faster, they are then more likely to actually keep going with the the dietary recommendations. And that's that's really powerful because that's the hardest part of our jobs, I think, is we can give that advice and it's how do we help somebody to think this is a good idea, this is really important for me to do, and we motivate them to keep to put those changes in place and to keep them going yes yes no i completely agree with that there's definitely a psychological element to to seeing results and then that propagating them to to sorry not propagating is not the right word but that um kind of inspiring them to carry on with what they're doing and um, it's yeah. the same with exercise i think as well when, when you do some exercise and you feel good or you might lose an inch off your waist and then it spurs you on to do more i think the same is with diet but obviously yeah. these um results might be slower with pcos um but you mentioned fertility now this is the big big question because i think every person with PCOS or certainly who who have these kind of symptoms will be thinking, how is this going to affect my fertility? Now, how detrimental is PCOS on a woman's fertility and what can we do to kind of improve it? Well, interestingly, when we talk about ovarian reserve, we're talking about a woman's egg store and we can measure that with uh, something called AMH, which is is, um, anti-malarian hormone. And in women with PCOS, it can almost be one of the tests that they do. It will be high because they've got a lot of these small follicles. And actually for PCOS, it's not such a risk factor for fertility in the sense of their egg store. Where the risk factor is, is if they're not ovulating, they're not going to be able to get pregnant. But it's not an issue of they haven't got the capability there. It's because of this metabolic situation it's not allowing an egg to be released at ovulation and once we trigger that off everything falls into place and it has been suggested that women with PCOS their fertility may go on longer than women who don't have it because they're losing that ovarian reserve where they have to be careful is women who go for IVF treatment because 
they have to, the doctors are always careful about stimulation because it can create a, a hyperstimulation situation because they've got so many of these small follicles there ready to um, become dominant. And that's where they have to be careful. So it's an interesting one that actually they've got a lot of what we call antral follicles, but they're all small and not growing enough to become dominant to be released to ovulation. But once we've got that sorted out, usually fertility clicks into place. Right, that's really, really interesting. And I suppose it's really hard to kind of know how much PCOS is going to affect women because there's inter-individual, um, inter-individual variation and also how if they're going to follow a protocol, a diet, etc., or not, or what diet or what health state they're indeed starting off with in the first place. Yes, and also how long they've had it and how, because it is a syndrome, how severe is it for them? And, you know, have they tried other things in the past? It's putting all that into place. I have to say women now, and this has changed over the last 20 or so 30 years I've been in practice, there's very much a thinking about what can I do to help myself? Because they may be offered the pill and they know it's going to give them an artificial cycle. But they're quite clear in saying, well, actually, when I come off the pill, I've still got PCOS and nothing has been resolved. And they're really now thinking for themselves, what can I do to help myself with this condition? What can I do to help myself in terms of my fertility that I want to be able to conceive naturally and to really sort of taking responsibility for their health because they're feeling that the pill is not solving anything it's just basically giving them an artificial cycle and they're in the same position when they've stopped taking it yes exactly it's kind of like masking the symptoms and then you're just going to have to deal with them later yes and then they're they're worried then they'd be on the pill for x amount of years and then go straight into fertility treatment because that's what they're going to need in order to get pregnant whereas if they resolve it earlier they may probably be able to conceive naturally and so they thought about this a lot and I have to say it's much more proactive now and wonderful to see the women coming in and saying you know I have this condition I have this diagnosis what can I do about it and I'd like to take action to do that and so they they can be very motivated when you were talking about the pill this has just got me thinking now and i don't know whether this would be correct but people or women who've started the pill say relatively young let's say 15 16 and they've been on it for 10 years let's say or longer and they've never come off it they've never had a break um properly how would they know whether they have PCOS or not, or whether they're just having this kind of um, reaction from coming off and on the pill? Yes, and that's a good one, actually, because they're not sure now, with some of the research I was looking at, and I've mentioned it in the book as well, that for some women, could it be an underlying cause of PCOS? It may be, because obviously what it's doing is making the ovaries go dormant, so there's no ovulation and that's why it's working well as a contraception. But is it actually creating the problem? For some women it's not, obviously. And when they come off the pill, for some women, they get pregnant really quickly because it's like their fertility revs up as soon as they've stopped taking it and they get pregnant like the next month and that can happen. 
there are other women who have what we call post-pill amenorrhea. They come off the pill, and for some women I've seen three years later, they've still not had a period. They don't have PCOS, but the ovaries have become dormant. They're lazy, if we put it like that. <laughs> they've not done any work for all that time on the pill, and they don't trigger back into action. And yet there are other women who come off the pill, and yes, they've got PCOS. And the question is, did they have it? And you're quite right, did they have it before they went on it? Or has that caused, has the pill caused the problem? And so there's been research into that as well. And, and only a woman would know if she'd had a scan or test before she went on it. So it, it's a tricky one. Right. Okay. Because I'm just thinking, is it important for women, or you know, this is obviously our opinions, but is it important for women in terms of taking a break from the pill to understand what if you have any symptoms and then go back on it if you can and also getting your cycle back and as you said stop your ovaries from being uh quote unquote lazy <laughs> <laughs> i think it is i think it's important to have a break um to see whether the cycle comes back naturally and then to make a decision that, you know, do they want to go back on it? Do they want to use any other form of contraception? But I think having a break is important to let the body do what it's supposed to do naturally for that time um, and for that to happen. I have seen some women go from being on the pill the whole time and then straight onto HRT at the menopause. So it's like we, they've med, med, medicalized the whole life cycle. So I think, yes, it, I think allowing the body to trigger back the cycle, make sure it's happening okay. And the woman then knows that everything's working as it should do. Even coming off the pill, it's actually gone back into complete um, normality. And then does she make the decision to go back on it if that's the best form of contraception for her but at least she knows her body's doing what it's supposed to and if it's not then it's worth then correcting that now rather than going straight back on the pill again right that's really useful information thank you for sharing that um there's there's so many other topics that we could actually cover and um, i'm just gonna slightly if we can brush over one more and then i'm gonna ask you my famous three questions because i know time's getting on and we, we we're short on time today um but environmental toxins comes up a lot and i spoke to dr tom o'brien about this and how it affects numerous different conditions in fact we were discussing a paper which was talking about whether um I think it was um, mothers in Finland should should be breastfeeding anymore just because of the toxicity in breast milk, which is built up over time, um, which is astonishing. Do mm. environmental toxins affect or exacerbate PC PCOS? Yes, and I have written a whole chapter in the book on these um, endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and I think, that, <laughs> I think that environmental side is really important. They've been measuring particularly BPA, the bisphenol A, in women with um, PCOS and also how it may affect fertility, um, ovulation. Yes, and it's whether it's disrupting the hormones completely or whether the, some of them will have an estrogenic effect. And it may be affecting women more because they can be in most of our cosmetics, moisturizers, toiletries that we're using on a regular basis that 
although environmentally we're going to be exposed to them, women are rubbing these chemicals, these endocrine disrupting chemicals actually on their skin and particularly in areas, you know, close to reproductive organs, breast tissue, all of that. So we do need to look at the things that we're putting on our skin, things that are going in the house, just as much label reading as I hope people do with their food. Right. You'd say they have to look at labels just as they do with their food, making sure there's not too many chemicals in there or any chemicals in there. Yes. And the the choices nowadays of organic, really good moisturizers and cosmetics are wonderful. And I've always had the feeling that we should only put on our skin what we be prepared to eat. Because what do you think of this skin as this porous organ? And that's why nicotine patches, HRT patches work so well, because they're going to get in the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. So we need to think about what is going to end up in our bloodstream because we've rubbed it on the skin. Yes, it may be the environment in aerosols, cleaning products in the house. But for women, it may be also coming in because of the a lot of cosmetics and moisturizers that we're using that will have these endocrine disrupting chemicals in and we may environmentally not be able to control everything we can't but we can definitely control the choices of what we're actually rubbing and putting on our body yes 100 percent, and yeah hugely empowering because we can definitely change that and i think the world that we live in today it is true to say that women do put more probably Yes, I think this is absolutely is true. More creams and, and substances and cosmetics on their skin than men do overall. So you can imagine why this would be exacerbating PCOS or any other um, hormonal mm. condition or syndrome for that matter. And I think what they may say, well, we know the research on one chemical and that may be the case. But in these cosmetics and moisturizers will be a number of chemicals and you've got a chemical cocktail and nobody knows the interactions of these different chemicals together and whether we're creating something that's even stronger, more of an endocrine disrupting effect because we've got this chemical cocktail, even though they might have tested the individual chemicals. So really to, to look at the labels on, and when you look at some of these moisturizers and that it's quite frightening what is really in there so i think it's something where we can do a lot for ourselves as women and particularly for pcos yeah uh, that is something which i've mentioned before on um the doctor's kitchen podcast I spoke, I spoke to him and we were talking about this idea that, you know, the the polyphenols and the, the compounds and fruits and vegetables have a synergistic effect, which is greater than the sum of their parts. Now, we have that element, but then you could also say the same for these kind of chemicals, environmental toxins that we have right now. They probably do have, well, we know they have some synergistic effects, but we don't know all of them. And if the actual overall effect will be worse than just the buildup of these chemicals individually and um, yes. the sum of these chemicals individually, which is something which is definitely um, another podcast for another time because that we could really go deep dive into that. But that is something which is hugely fascinating and, and also quite worrying um, that it's not being fully addressed. And I think also, you know, because our homes are often hermetically sealed, 
you know, we've got secondary glazing and that sort of thing. Even the aerosols, the air fresheners, the polishes, the cleaning products, let alone what we're putting on our skin, is what's going on inside the house as well as what's going on in the rest of the environment. But we can make choices about what cleaning products, what polishes, what air fresheners, what are we spraying in our house? And we can make choices to actually clean up our own environment, which we're breathing in a day to day, you know, every hour of the day. Yes, absolutely. I have to, to highlight this point, though. It's important to be aware of these things, but not worried, because I know some people will be listening to be like, right, everything needs to be binned. Um, <laughs> yes. And, yeah. yeah. And my, my feeling always is that we do have to compromise because we can't control everything. And oftentimes, not at the moment, but if I'm going to give a talk, I've got water in a plastic bottle. I take the view that I'm going to need, I'm going to, need to carry that with me. So it's just about doing what we can, the changes we can do, and knowing that always there will be compromises. And it's the same, I do like to buy organic food. And people say to me, well, it doesn't always contain more of the nutrients. It, I'm hoping it does. But my biggest thing about buying the organic food is I'm trying to reduce the pesticide exposure, which mm -hmm. can be these endocrine disrupting chemicals. But I won't be able to get organic all the time. So it's just about making compromises and just doing the best we can most of the time. Yes, absolutely. I completely resonate with that. Um, and that brings me to the final three questions, which I ask everyone that comes on the show, with the first one being, what is the biggest health change that you have made in your life and why? I have to go back quite a time with this one, Ben, um, because it was what got me really into the whole natural world um, was that I had terrible migraines as a child and a teenager and I had loads of medication, uh, been to the hospital, tried every drug under the sun and they were dreadful. And it was only went to see an acupuncturist who actually said, had I tried removing some things from my diet? And it was like a light bulb moment that my diet could have anything to do with my health mm -hmm. and how <laughs> what I might be experiencing. And I did change my diet. And the two things for me then were cheese and chocolate that were such a trigger for these migraines, but it was such a, a long gap. It was like 36 hours before you could see the actual effect. So those were the two, although I could have them now and it wouldn't make any difference at all. But that was the biggest health change for me that then made me look at other aspects of the diet side of things and uh, really was quite a, a light bulb moment that our, what we're eating could be affecting our health. Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, no, knowing kind of pinpointing what, if you have any sensitivities at all to foods or intolerances or allergies, I think is huge. Because you can even have a minor allergy to a food and not really know about it. It's just mm. like an itchy throat or something. Um, but yeah. And then, so the second question, how can healthcare become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we have discussed today? I think the whole aspect now of lifestyle medicine, I think, is growing. And I'm hoping that because we're seeing, as with PCOS, the research on the dietary interventions in the medical literature and the nutrients themselves, all of that being the evidence being there, 
that over time this will grow to, to be used as what I would hope is an integrated approach, that we can use the best of the medical world and the best of the nutritional world together. So sometimes women are coming in who are around the menopause and can't take HRT because of a history of breast cancer, and they want to manage that stage naturally. There are other women coming in who are going for IVF treatment. They need a medical approach for whatever reason, and they want to use the nutritional side to make this effect more effective. So I think this integration and this conversation and building bridges can be really useful. And I do refer to consultants. I want you know them to have medical advice where needed. And I think this openness really important to be able to share this information and look at what's there in the medical literature and take that evidence and use that in the protocols that we're using with you know people that we're seeing. Beautiful. And last but not least, can you please provide the listeners with three tips to help improve their health and well-being from today? I have to say my biggest one is this refined sugar, that it needs to come out of the diet. Absolutely. And I ended up writing a book called Natural Alternatives to Sugar. And now it's implicated in cancer, Alzheimer's, they want to call type 3 diabetes. You when you look at it, it is such, it's so prevalent, unfortunately, because it's in all our savory food as well as our sweet foods. But the effects on our health is are enormous, enormous. And yet, you know, people may not be seeing it as being so important. But unfortunately, now it is in so many foods that people are buying that we end up with a lot, a cumulative effect during the day, even if people aren't adding it into tea and coffee. They think people may be getting up to 18 teaspoons a day Mm. of sugar because it's coming in from the food. Yeah, which is just astonishing. And my other two tips would be to do two tests. And one of them would be vitamin D. And I have to say that, yes, it's been coming up recently in terms of immune function, but it is so prevalent, this deficiency. And again, going back to women's health, that actually we're seeing it much more in women because of the cosmetics or moisturizers may have inbuilt some protection factors in. And our body does not expect us to get much from our food. It has to come through this exposure, through the skin. And there's been some cases where the lab have phoned me to say that there's no trace of vitamin D in some samples at all. It has been that low and quite shocking and unfortunately no symptoms necessarily to trigger somebody to think i might be vitamin d deficient and then the last one would be this omega six to three ratio that we should have had of about a one to one a two to one and the research is showing that the diets are going up to 25 times too much omega six to omega three and it's driving inflammation in the body it will manifest differently for different people arthritis, colitis, diverticulitis, anything with an ITIS on it is inflammation. And the experts are suggesting it is our underlying cause of most of our degenerative illnesses. And if we can do something about correcting this pro-inflammatory side, really important and getting this ratio under control. So we now have the ability to test for it, which we couldn't do before. So for me, they would be it, they would be my three tips. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. 
Marilyn, it's been a huge pleasure speaking to you on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed listen, uh, learning about PCOS, and I do hope this information has been useful for listeners. And um, if anyone wants to learn more, obviously Marilyn has written not one, not two, but over 13 books on women's health, um, just to keep you occupied. But if there's anything else that you want to to um, dive into more, I'll put link to all the resources below in the in the show notes. And also, if you want to um, get tested or you're worried about this condition, please go to your GP. But Marilyn, before you go, please can you tell the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects you have coming up? Yeah, so they can find me at glenvillenutrition.com and they're very welcome to email me at reception at glenvillenutrition.com and I've got lots of um, different projects coming up. I do an Insta Live every Thursday at one o'clock. People are welcome to keep in touch and I am running a 30-minute consultation by Skype or phone at the at at the clinic at the moment because obviously we can't do the one-to-ones which I'm missing but um, in person but we can still run them remotely so if you need any help with anything you're very welcome to get in touch with me. Fantastic Marilyn it's been a huge pleasure to speaking to you I've thoroughly enjoyed it um, and I do hope that we can do this again soon. Thank you very much Ben lovely to speak to you too. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support. 